Section 12 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cindy Henkin. Chicago. HenkinVO.com. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 4, Part 2. A solemn, stiff, sleepy business. That is how my father qualified his proposed dinner. And that is how I should have looked on the ceremony also, if it had not been for the one guest whose presence moved me in a singular way. Baron Tilling came the instant before the meet. So when he saluted me in the drawing-room, I had no time for more than the briefest exchange of words. And at the table, where I sat between two snow-white generals, the baron was removed so far from me that it was impossible for me to draw him into the conversation carried on at our end of the table. I was pleased at the return into the drawing-room. There I meant to call Tilling to me and question him further about the battle scene. I longed to hear again that tone of voice which had at first sounded so sympathetically in my ears, but no opportunity offered itself to me at first to carry out this intention. The two old generals kept constant to me after dinner, too, and sat down at my side when I took my place in the drawing-room to pour out Café Noir. To them joined themselves, in a semicircle, my father, the minister, Dr. Bresser, and finally Tilling. But the conversation which arose was on general topics. The rest of the guests, all the ladies among them, had got together in another corner of the drawing-room, where smoking was not going on, whilst in our corner smoking was allowed, and even I myself had lighted a cigarette. Suppose it should break out again, suggested one of the old generals. Hmm, said the other. I think the next war we shall have will be with Russia. Must there always be a next war, I interposed, but no one took any notice. With Italy first, my father persisted, we must at all events get back our Lombardy. Just such a march into Milan as we had in 49 with Father Renetsky at our head. I should like to live to see that. It was on a sunny morning. Oh, I interrupted. We all know the story of the entry into Milan. And do you also know that of the brave Hupfa? I do. And I think it very revolting. What do you understand of such things? Let us hear it, Althaus. We do not know the story. My father did not wait to be asked twice. Well, this Hoofa of the regiment of Tyrolese Jaegers, he was a Tyrolese himself, he did a famous piece of work. He was the best shot that could be imagined. He was always king at all the shooting matches. He hit the mark almost always. What did he do when the Milanese revolted? Why, he begged permission to go to the roof of the cathedral with four comrades and fire down from hence on the rebels. He got permission and carried out his plan. The four others, each of whom carried a rifle, did nothing else but load their weapons without intermission and hand them to the Hupfa, so that he might lose no time and in this way he shot ninety Italians dead, one after the other. Horrible, I cried out. 
each of these slaughtered Italians, on whom that man fired down from his safe position above, had a mother and a sweetheart at home, and was himself, no doubt, reckoning on his opening life. My dear, all of them were enemies, and that alters the whole point of view. Very true, said Dr. Bresser. As long as the idea of the state of enmity between men is sanctioned, so long the precepts of humanity cannot be of universal application. What say you, Baron Tilling? I asked. I should have wished for the man a decoration to adorn his valiant breast, and a bullet to pierce his hard heart. Both would have been well deserved. I threw the speaker a warm, thankful glance, but the others, except the doctor, seem affected unpleasantly by the words that they had just heard. A little pause ensued. As the French say, c'est le visage de Théophro. Have you heard, Your Excellency, of a book by an English natural philosopher named Darwin? said the doctor, turning to my father. No, never. Oh, yes, Papa, just recollect. It is now four years ago since our bookseller sent us the book, just after the appearance, and you then said it would soon be forgotten by the whole world. Well, as far as I am concerned, I have quite forgotten it. The world in general, on the contrary, seems in a pretty state of excitement about it, said the doctor. There is a fight going on for or against the new theory of origin in every place, Ah, you mean the ape theory, asked the general on my right. There was talk about that yesterday in the casino. These scientific gentlemen hit on strange notions sometimes, that a man should have been an orangutan to begin with. To be sure, said the minister, nodding. And when the minister said to be sure, it was always a sign that he was making himself up for a long talk. The thing sounds rather funny and yet it is capable of being taken seriously. It is a scientific theory, built up not without talent, and with an apparatus of an industrious collection of facts, and though, to be sure, these have been satisfactorily controverted by the specialists, yet all adventurous notions, however extravagant they may be, it has produced a certain effect and finds its defenders. It has become a fashion to discuss Darwin, but this will not last long, though the word Darwinism has been invented, and then, to be sure, the so-called theory will itself cease to be taken seriously. It is a pity that people get so hot fighting over this eccentric Englishman, his theory thus acquires an importance to which it has no claim. It is, of course, the clergy who especially set themselves in an array against the imputation, which, to be sure, is a degrading one. That man, created in the image of God, should now all of a sudden be thought to be derived from the race of brutes, an assumption which, to be sure, is very shocking from a religious point of view. Still, it is notorious that the ecclesiastical condemnation of a theory 
which introduces itself in the garb of science, is not capable of stopping its dissemination. Such a theory does not become harmless till it has been reduced ad absurdum by the representatives of science. And in that respect of Darwinism, to be sure... But what nonsense! broke in my father, fearful, as it seemed, that another long string of to-be-sures might weary the rest of his guests. What nonsense! From apes to men? Surely what is called ordinary healthy common sense is enough to refute all such mad notions. Scientific refutation is hardly wanted. Well, I can scarcely regard these refutations as perfectly and demonstrably certain, said the doctor. They have, it is true, awakened reasonable doubts of it. But still, the theory has much probability in its favor, and it will take some little time to bring men of learning to unanimity about it. I think these gentry will never be unanimous, said the general on my left, who spoke with a harsh accent, and generally used the Viennese dialect. Why, they live by disputing. I have heard something of this ape business, but it was too stupid, to my mind, to suit me. Why, if one bothered oneself about all the chatter that the stargazers and grass collectors and frog dissectors used to make us believe X is Y, one should be losing one ears and eyes. Besides, a while ago, in an illustrated paper, I saw a visage of this Darwin, and that itself so apish that I can well believe his grandfather was a chimpanzee. This joke which pleased the speaker mightily, was followed by a burst of laughter in which my father joined with the affability of a host. Ridicule is, to be sure, a weapon, said the minister seriously, but it does not prove anything. It is possible, however, to meet Darwinism, I may use this new term, and conquer it, with serious arguments resting on scientific basis. If one can oppose to an author of no authority such names as Linnaeus, Cuvier, Argosy, Cadefraud, his system must fall in pieces. On the other hand, to be sure, it cannot be denied that between men and apes there is a great similarity of structure and that... In spite of this similarity, however, the cleft is miles wide, broke in the quieter general. Can you imagine an ape capable of inventing the telegraph? Speech alone raises men so far above beasts. I beg your excellency's pardon, said Dr. Bresser. Speech and artistic inventions were not originally congenital in mankind. Even today, a savage could not construct any sort of telegraphic apparatus. All this is the fruit of slow improvement and development. Yes, yes, dear doctor, replied the general. I know development is the Kant word of the new theory. Still, you cannot develop a camel out of a kangaroo. And why does not one at this time see an ape turning into a man? I turned to Baron Tilling. And what say you? 
Have you heard of Darwin? And do you reckon yourself among his followers or opponents? I have heard a great deal about the matter, Countess, but I have formed no judgment on it. For as to the work under discussion, The Origin of Species, I have not read it. I must confess, said the doctor, that I have not either. Read it? Well, to be sure, I have not either, said the minister. Nor I, nor I, nor I, they all said. But, the minister proceeded, the subject has been so much spoken of. The Kant's words of the system fight for existence, natural selection, evolution, etc., are in everybody's mouth, so that no one can form a clear conception of the whole matter and select a side decidedly with its supporters or opponents, to which first class, to be sure, belong only some hotspurs who love violent changes and are always grasping after effect, while the cool, strictly critical people who demand proof positive cannot possibly choose any other than the position of opponents shared by so many specialists of consideration, a position which, to be sure, that can hardly be positively asserted, said Tilling, reviewing the whole matter, unless one knows the position of its supporters. In order to know what the strength of the opposing argument is, which, as soon as a new idea comes up, are heard shouting in a chorus all round it, one must oneself have penetrated into the idea. It is generally the worst and weakest reasons which are repeated by the masses with such unanimity, and on such grounds I do not choose to pass a judgment. When the theory of Copernicus came up, only those who had gone through the labor of following the calculations of Copernicus could see that they were correct. The others who guided their judgment by anathemas, which were thundered against the new system from Rome. In our century, interrupted the minister, as I observed before, scientific hypotheses, if incorrect, are no longer rejected on the grounds of orthodoxy, but of science, not only if incorrect, answered Tilling, but even when they are going afterwards to be established, New hypotheses are always at first controverted by the old fogies of science. This set does not like, even in our day, to be shaken in their long-accustomed views and dogmas, just as at that time it was not only the fathers of the church, but the astronomers also, who were zealous in attacking Copernicus. Do you mean by this, broke in the rough-speaking general, that this ape notion of our eccentric Englishman is as correct as the earth goes round the sun? I will make no assertion at all about it, because, as I have said, I do not know the book, but I will make a point of reading it, perhaps, but only perhaps, for my knowledge of such matters is only slight, I shall then be able to form a judgment. Up to the present time, I must confine myself to supporting my opinion on the fact that this theory meets with widespread and passionate opposition. A fact, to be sure, which, to my mind, speaks rather for than against its truth. You brave, straightforward, clear spirit, I said to myself, apostrophizing the speaker. 
About eight o'clock, the guests in general broke up. My father wanted to detain them all longer, and I also murmured mechanically a few hospitable phrases, e.g., at least you will stay for a cup of tea, but in vain. Each produced some excuse. One had an engagement at the casino, another at a party. One of the ladies had her box at the opera and wanted to see the fourth act of the Huguenots. Another expected some friends at her house. In short, we were obliged to let them go, and not so unwillingly as we pretended. Tilling and Dr. Presser, who had risen at the same time as the others, were the last to take their leave. And what have you two so important to do? asked my father. I myself. Nothing, answered Tilling, smiling. But as the other guests are going, it would be indiscreet. That is my case, too, said the doctor. Well, then, I will not let either of you go. End of section 12